This is the Wizard and Oz podcast, a future-focused show looking at current events and what we can do about them. I'm joined by the wizard Tristan Barker, an infamous internet troll turned investment banker, reformed fugitive and indigenous environmentalist. <laughs> Alongside him, Oz Sultan, a Republican district leader in Harlem, focused on clean tech and blockchain legislation, an American Muslim, he's also heavily focused on bridging the gap between faiths. My name is Lachlan. I'm a halal snack pack enthusiast. I'll take a moment to thank our first sponsor for this first episode of the Wizard and Oz podcast, Rocket Tech Support. Protect your computer, protect your community, protect your country. Gentlemen, thank you for joining on this first episode of the Wizard and Oz podcast. I'm really looking forward to the conversations that come out of this this series. Um, I think probably the best place to start would be how you two know each other and how we're we're at where we are today. So, I mean, that that's kind of interesting. It started it started largely through the crypto community. Um, Tristan was working on a, a green tech project that was looking for a fair amount of funding, um, and this was to do a waste to energy plant. Uh, well, actually, multiple waste to energy projects. One in Romania, one in Australia, and then a pilot in America. But maybe Tristan, you know, you want to dig into that a little bit and kind of like walk that one through. Yeah. So that was um, that was an awesome opportunity. I got uh, I got to work with an incredible scientist called Gary Price, who's um, very very quite talented in the particulars of not just understanding like you know some form of alchemy that the rest of us are going to need um in a few years but reducing it to a really quite uh effective factory that really takes into mm-hmm. account factors like heat waste and stuff um so he's got a really brilliant uh mindset between chemistry to uh factory and our biggest hurdles were were funding and legislation and i was looking around in my networks i'm like who's got like who's got the like really like the, the crypto community this is going to shock no one for me to say this there's some people that are really quite visionary there are people that are really quite interested in what a developed uh world of fintech can do for people and there are believe it or not some people real interested in shoving a shit ton of money in their pocket regardless mm-hmm. of what's a wise thing to do with it or where legislation's going and i'm like Hey, Oz cares about the environment and has what looks like a pretty good track record here. Like this guy looks like the best person to approach with this. And uh, yeah, trusting in the show of character paid off. Oz has got experience in not just the things that uh, I thought were relevant, but he'd, he'd spent a great deal of time figuring out what it would be like to get one of these types of reactors functional in new york and for, mm-hmm. for the listeners at home what a zero or low oxygen um reaction is is more or less i'll put it in the dumbest terms possible um in order for you to burn a piece of trash you need oxygen right you remove the oxygen from the environment it can't burn so when you heat it the things that would normally combust and burn they escape and you get access to the gases that can be used to make energy cleanly and you're just leaving the carbon over in a pure carbon form that can be put into soil to make it more fertile. So you're but, turning... but beyond that, you, you also turn part of the solids into something that's like a charcoal. 
and that becomes a briquette. And so between the gases and the briquettes, you can basically take anything that you have waste, whether it's manure, uh, human waste, waste solids, um, unrecyclable plastics, recyclable plastics, uh, and even, you know, certain types of garbage. And all of this can be fed through that process of burning it in a low oxygen environment, turning it into these briquettes and then running entire energy generation systems. And if you, you were to think about this, you know, because people always look at me and they're like, politically, this, this shouldn't fit. And I'm like, you know, I, I grew up as a, a kid uh, in Pittsburgh and my dad was in the steel industry and he was in coal and we had to deal with acid rain. We had to deal with the fact that like you couldn't hang your laundry outside because it would turn black from the soot coming from, you know, all of these coal fired plants. And it, it really should come down to, excuse me, um, a focus on can we have clean air, clean water and, you know, clean living, like clean food. And a lot of that just comes back to the crux of this, which is energy. Um, and if we're able to, you know, regardless of political parties, come up with energy solutions that one kind of help the traditional companies innovate and, and realize that like, okay, well, you know, if we just continued burning coal, we'll make money, but maybe we can make a little bit more money by diversifying into solar, by looking at wind, but realistically looking at a lot of this waste to energy, which I think is, is a, a real low hanging fruit opportunity for them. Um, and then, you know, there's there's the other aspects of clean tech that are that are emerging from this. Like we've talked about what MIT is doing with these new ferrous batteries where they could store, you know, gigawatts literally um, yeah. on on the grid and and just all, all of the new innovations that are there. And it's like the the nature of industry and the want to satisfy quarterly earnings reports for your investors has, has really kind of left us in this quandary where we're having some trouble innovating and i think the the stagnation in between political parties not just in the united states but globally um over like what are the the best options and you know who should we be talking to technologically and and how should we be building this really kind of needs to be something that becomes like a policy solution um but that's where we started you know and and we're we're kind of two oddballs in this mix because we're both minorities. Um, you know, we both kind of have uh, a slightly different upbringing from a lot of folks. We've dealt with a lot of ultraviolence in our lives. Um, and, you know, we focused on causes that we care about. And, and I think that's where the big synergy is. And that's where we just thought, hey, a conversation about this makes sense. Yeah, it's good yeah. that you, you brought that up because I was uh, the from a politically compatible standpoint, um, the, the both of you obviously have very different backgrounds. And um, and that's it's uh, it's interesting to, to see how you've developed that that friendship through this um, this really turbulent uh, or a couple of different very turbulent uh, industries and areas of, of expertise. And um, <clears throat> given that you are obviously different different ages and have grown up on different sides of the planet um, and yet have found you, yourselves here, um, what do, what do you think it is that uh, that draws um, the two of you together in terms of uh, what what you can sort of look to achieve, uh, what what you want to work towards with each other. Oh, so Huge you want to start first? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll say like one like uh, there's a 
there's a thing you'll find with a lot of people who um, don't fit within a convenient enough stereotype is like mm -hmm. for most people, it's it's quite difficult. And it's something that fortunately I can say in countries where I have fit a lot of the right molds, like in Australian, in Australia, people don't know what a moldy nose or lips looks like. So unless I'm in Frankston or Southwest Sydney, people can't actually recognize whether or not I'm Maori. They're just like, oh, this guy might have an Italian grandparent or something. He goes different color in the sun. And in <laughs> Australia, I managed to avoid this. So I'll pat myself on the back. But in general, it's hard to avoid the cultural conditionings of whether you where, where you're born into, right? And you're kind of given this easy mode run that's exacerbated by the fact that it can be quite difficult when you're born outside of those things. And so it's very, you'll find that people that are born outside of a lot of these uh, stereotypes um, are naturally incentivized to, to sort of understand who around them can also see the failures of those conditionings, right? Like mm -hmm. in, in, in one lens, you'd go, oh, this is environmentalism. This sounds uh, like lefty cuck bullshit. Um, where's your sense of self-interest? But in another, if you're not protecting the quality of the air you fucking breathe, the water you fucking drink, mm -hmm. and the soil, your food, that's going to affect you and your children's hormone levels, if you're not interested in how these things work, what are you really conserving? Like, you can, what, you're going to go conserve some more fictitious capital? Good job. Like, exactly. Whereas when you look at like um, at, at the energy scenario, I think there's something that's you know it's it's quite nice, uh, nicely um, both hemispheric. When you go, hey, nuclear, huge legislative issue, uh, contentious issue to the public, um, and has massive amounts of complication to it. Great energy mm -hmm. option heaps of positives, heaps of potential negatives. And then you look at another thing, solar, wind, etc. Those things are sort of being innovated incrementally. So there's not mm -hmm. a huge amount of money that can be turned around in a short period of time. Whereas with waste um, to energy, you're looking at two critical infrastructures to a society that need cleaning up, both uh, energy, um, demands going up, and supplies waste. not moving with it, and waste. So you're, you're managing to advance a city more cost effectively from a government side, and you're dealing with a far more disruptive innovation on the investment side. And so the idea that this is like not conservative or red-pilled enough is just low IQ takes. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I mean, you speak, you speak to that and it's like, we, you know, we met with the Department of Sanitation. We talked to folks in the de Blasio administration. We were told things like, you know, this has to be operational for five years somewhere in the United States in a pilot mode before they'll even consider it. And when you consider the fact that New York City generates 50,000 tons of garbage uh, on an annualized basis, and the, actually I think it might even be more than that, um, but those were the last it's data not points small. that I had. <laughs> I remember it's not, that it's much not about small. the research. <laughs> you know, we, we export our garbage to New Jersey and, and, and a couple other states, and I, I think some of it ends up overseas. That's um, still not helping the Knicks, though, is it? No, it's not helping, <laughs> it's not helping the Knicks at all. And it's definitely not helping the Mets and the Yankees. Um, you, you know, but one of the things that, that I put forward to them, I said, look, if we're just able to take 
all of the plastic that you supposedly recycle or that in most cases just gets burned and run it into this process. You know, we could change the carting, uh, which is, you know, the, the garbage trucks um, and, and some of their relationships with different cities. We could centralize this, we could create jobs out of it. Um, and we could create a lot of power resiliency. And, and a lot of this it mm-hmm. should be considered because we're shutting down um, a nuclear reactor mid-state, uh, which is called Indian Point, and um, which is just south of West Point, uh, the university and you know also the, the, the city. And you're going to lose like somewhere between one to three gigawatts of capacity, right? And so what's replacing that? Like where, where, where's, where's that energy coming from? Meanwhile, at the same time, we're generating all this garbage. We're not utilizing the technology innovations that are out there. Uh, you've got a lot of politicos that talk, you know, a lot of hot talk, but it, it really just works out to be lipstick on the pig about actually fixing these things and nothing changes. Uh, and, and I think that the delta here is that like, look, I'm Gen X and Tristan is on that millennial Gen Z cusp, right? And there's more similarities generationally we have in between us in terms of you know, what we see as the need for change, what we see as a need for focus. And the fact that, you know, we've, we've both been pretty much inside of industry uh, technologically for kind of as long as we can remember. I mean, I've got like a decade or, or two on, on Tristan, um, but the the similarities in terms of perspective coming from different parts of the globe coming from different ethnicities you know i'm i'm arab and and south asian um and then also different you know just different different politics different landscapes all everything's different but but the similarities are really around the the not just the the understanding of like the complexities of identity right because you know when when you think maori I mean, most people go to like a Disney movie or, you know, they'll they'll think about some like Palomalu from the Steelers uh, or, you know, they'll and, and they'll miss it. And he's Samoan, by the way, he's not Maori. Right. So they'll start mixing all this stuff together. Yeah. And then when you say Muslim, like we've got people from 77 countries in in the United States alone from like different majority Muslim countries. And, you know, everyone wants to paint us as a monolith. It thinks the same. Everyone who who tries to package people inside of like these these terms like BIPOC and, and that sort of a thing. Like it's just very limiting. And and it doesn't advance the conversation. It doesn't advance understanding. It doesn't advance society. Um, and so we thought, well, if we could take a stab at kind of, you know, the the content creation aspect of this, we could take, you know, a run at some of these conversations. If we can open the doors to the understanding in between black and white, which is where, you know, billions of us live, that isn't part of the conversation, that isn't something that gets more than lip service, that isn't something that the media does more than just say, here's another stereotype about those people, right? Um, We could actually kind of start breaking down some of these walls um, and we could start building more understanding but then the, the bigger thing is I work in policy. Tristan works on the investment side of things. And, you know, I advise um, a number of companies. Uh, the, the thought process here is maybe we can actually affect some change by, by really coming up with concrete solutions that make sense, mm-hmm. presenting them, and seeing that, you know, if there's the opportunity to 
engage a broader audience in kind of saying, hey, not only does that make sense, but, you know, maybe we should start raising those issues because that's the only thing that seems to work with politicos, whether they're Democrat or Republican or even independent, whether they're right leaning or left leaning internationally. Um, and this goes from America to Australia and even in the EU and other countries around the globe. Mm. So it's, that's kind of where we started. <laughs> yeah, no, it, well, honestly, like it, it's incredible when you when you come at um, investment or at policy with the attitude of how am I going to honorably add a plus sum contribution to humanity and what's mm -hmm. in the way when you're 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 approaching these things with the attitude you should have i think it quite naturally draws you to notice the same solutions and inefficiencies as well like it's a it's just a more uh microcosmic um equivalent of oz and i living outside of regular stereotypable boxes and therefore mm -hmm. quite naturally noticing where those don't fit as well and um i think it's interesting because uh i found that the way people interact with the internet um has a huge deal to do with like their exposure to non-internet and internet therefore providing a con like a context to it like what mm -hmm. i've seen in the hacking communities is that a lot of the kids who grew up with ipads like they don't really think much about like the fact that there's such thing as an app or an operating system like these words are just mm -hmm. jargon and the button brings them their uber eats mm. and like i can relate to that a little bit because that's how tvs were to me yeah. i didn't know how the fuck the satellite worked like i know i was never mm -hmm. there when that got installed i was there when the internet got installed and it got upgraded and i got exposed to the idea of with and without and so i think that that cusp that i'm on has given me a weird ability to relate to people a bit older who were involved in tech and watched the introduction of these elements because i i'd say from what i've noticed it's about 1991 to 1996 um that have like vivid memories all mm. the way up to say 14 15 years old of pre uh for us like what like messenger facebook and instagram is now that combo used to be like msn messenger or aol and or zanga yeah. yeah and and so uh seeing like the steps of those developments and the way that they've come to affect um you know the organization of you know just humans um gives gives not just a sense of perspective but also a sense of responsibility right because mm -hmm. like to those who don't understand that there is something going on behind that tapestry like oftentimes it's like well shit like there's there's a long way to go in terms of us i think thinking like you know relevantly like like rel like thinking relevantly to the time and the things mm -hmm. that are that are, that are happening it's hard for them to notice it right because they were born into a car going 100 miles per hour they didn't get into a car that accelerated to 100 miles per hour so like their, their accelerometers are all wacky their right. their sense of momentum is without context and it's really alarming to me to see like uh you know like 13 to 18 year olds 
now like there's a there's they don't have a healthy sense of rebellion or test in them they've got a really cynical apathy because then mm -hmm. they, they were just born into a world where they're like oh apparently this whole thing's sinking you know better get drunk on this titanic um whereas but, but i i would i would add to that right so there's 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 that and, and you've always had mixtures of that, but you, you know, kind of think about this. Like we had web one, which was the internet yeah. and you know, the same type of policy problems we had then we're having now before they didn't understand it. They either wanted to kill it or tax it. Right. And there, there was all these arguments for internet tax and we've got all of these decentralized taxes for different States that people who are selling on the internet have to adhere to. And, you see this most clearly in Amazon because you're taxed on certain things and in different rates at different domiciles, but depending on where you live. And in some countries you have VAT and some places you just have state tax and some places you have uh, other levies that are, are thrown on top of there and it gets more expensive. Um, but, you know, Web 2 was kind of that migration from like, all right, well, it's now on the Internet. And now what we're doing is we're we're stapling the community aspect to it in a more formalized way. And we're allowing you to create content, and and there was a big movement which was the commercialization of that content to the, de, you know, to the detriment of a lot of the content creators, right? Because you, you look at the the Buzzfeeds and the Vices and a lot of these other other outlets that were out there, they initially started paying people pretty well. Um, they started moving away from that. Um, you know, it, it then went to freelance writers and then there's a lot of user generated content. Huffington Post is, I think, the most egregious example of that. Uh, and it's, it's no one's really being paid to do this stuff. And now we're into Web3, which is like Web1 again, where you have the Internet, you have community, you have advanced methods of commerce and finance that are coming from blockchain. But instead of it just being like this two-dimensional thing that was the internet or this two-dimensional thing that was social where, you know, you had video, you had text, you had chat feeds, you had all this stuff, it's now three-dimensional, right? So now what you're doing is you're looking at something that has this whole component of Web3, which is the metaverse and blockchain and decentralized finance and things to it, but you're, you don't have the the wherewithal of a lot of companies to make the change or make the jumps um that they sh they should be and and i think that that kind of feeds into where you're you're going with a lot of this in terms of like the apathy and the lack of understanding and that sort of a thing i was born pre-internet and i grew up pre-internet you remember times that are roughly pre-internet but you were young everyone who is ostensibly generation z or um i would say generation alpha which is right behind them, they grew up fully inside of the web, right? It was everywhere. Social media was everywhere. You know, they don't even have their first birthday, but there's pictures and documentation of them online, whether that's Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or Weibo mm -hmm. or TikTok or, or one of, you know, the hundred other platforms that are out there. Um, and in a lot of senses, their, I, their right to privacy the right to identity, the right to a lot of other things yes. have been kind of ha, have kind of been limited, and and there's this there, there's a portion, I think of of you know Generation Z that's looking at this from the perspective it's really your generation, and you can speak more to this, but it's that that some of that needs to be taken back, and then at the same point in time, you've got that ongoing 
interesting aspect of multiple cycles. Like we have a hundred year cycle of, you know, war and, and disease that hit us with COVID. We've got about a 20 year boom cycle, which we're moving into with the whole web three thing. We've got a economic cycle of downturn based upon the fact that there just all these banks and other organizations are over leveraged. And we've got a technological cycle, which is now pushing the same way the industrial revolution changed everything in terms of manufacturing and power generation and whatnot into this new industrial revolution. But the problem is, is that instead of it just being like Andrew Carnegie making steel and Ford making cars and a couple other people making certain things, it's literally hundreds and hundreds of categories of things. Everything from agriculture to battery storage to what we're talking about, waste to energy, to the internet, to Web3, to space technology. And, and, and it's, it's huge. And so when, when you, you think about like before, like 99, 2000, we could talk about things and you kind of encapsulate the whole of the internet. Nowadays, when you start talking about these things, you're really only talking about that much. And, and it's about yay broad, and that's bigger than the screen. I think it's, mm. I think it's probably impossible to grasp the impact that these changes are having on little kids. Well, um, let me tell mm-hmm. let, 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 let me dump, let me dump a couple factors. Like we don't have, so we don't have answers to these questions, but let me tell you, like, uh, I'll give you a couple <laughs> questions that also multiply with one another. You'll see how exponentially cooked this gets. Consider the fact that like between uh, three and eight, I believe, um, you're, you're forming the concept of what an identity is and means to your society. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, between eight and 13, uh, you're routinizing these things. So the human in those stages is then coming to try and routinize this um, as it goes into puberty where its next set of challenges is going to come up. And that's when you deal with like testosterone rising the orbitoprefrontal cortex in males. This is sort of when they start mm-hmm. like normally they in, in previous generations this is when they used to start punching each other and stuff, right? They're, they're starting to deal with a more adult version of physiology an adult uh, pain threshold an adult, uh, well, a young person, um, basically an adult on steroids level of um, recovery. And then in that, they normally find like where they sat within those particular pecking orders. Then between 19 and 24 mm-hmm. through most of history, uh, they would organize based upon these things that they've then built as they've got a more well-formed brain. They've uh, had mentors as, you know, kings, warriors, magicians, and lovers. And then they've sort of come to accept their responsibility as the young ones that can carry out the legwork. And then there'd be quite a lot of like cleansing of corruption and such between 19 and 24. They're proving their honor and and whatnot. And now what are they doing? They're on, (laughs) like they're doing none of this at all you know they're doing their their hormone levels are disrupted by the standards of um, waste management um getting uh more and more insufficient um by agriculture getting more and more screwed with um finance is getting dragged uh in increasingly extrinsic cycles where uh like for example we're dealing with like massive issues of fictitious capital and like in terms of the inefficiencies of investment and technology, like you guys got to consider how much 
there is like uh, just young kids chasing unicorns out in Silicon Valley, hoping that their next tech product is going to be something that makes a shit ton of money in five years instead of people paying attention to the Benner cycle and wanting to contribute to agriculture and wanting to get even richer and more stable in a way that serves society more over 10 years. They don't want that. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. They've and, just been shoved well, in well, a there's, locker there's, there's for their whole thing. childhood with various forms of power that don't connect well with those hormonal systems that are then thrown off. So we've got so many things out of whack and these kids are consuming digital crack as far as well then then add 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 the last factor to that which is that we have over prescribed medication to children and adults for everything over the course of now 25 or 30 years and that's affected the water table right so in new york there's so much um uh there, there's there, there's so much in terms of like hormone affecting drugs which are birth, birth control but there's there's also a lot coming from antidepressants and whatnot that has entered the water table that it's it's affecting the the genders of fish like they're they're literally changing genders and so you you have to think that if people aren't drinking like 10 stage filtered water and it's just tap water in their their ecosystem and they're consuming, you know, a lot of processed sugar and processed carbohydrates and and that sort of a thing. What, what you're doing is you're you're kind of dumbing people down. You're you're giving them stuff that's not necessarily as healthy as it used to be, and you're forcing them at very young ages into these data ecosystems, which are social media, um, but where they're forced to compete. And, you know, you think about the cyberbullying and the fact that we now have, like, it's just a regular basis where there's, like, 12 or 14-year-old girls that are committing suicide because of the rampant cyberbullying that goes on online. And and the fact that it, it's become a little primal, I, I guess you could say, in terms of how a lot of the interactions are online. Because anything that you could say, if someone has a stereotype of you, they're going to have some sort of weird visceral response to it, right? Well, they don't see you as as multidimensional anymore. Yeah, and it's not it's not just the one guy at school that calls them that name. It's the fact that if you ever looked over their shoulder, like like I've seen the crap that gets fed to, um, you know, uh, younger kids in my family. I'm always like, I'm like, oh yeah, what's it like? What's their YouTube suggesting them? And like, I had to sit one of them down and go like, okay. You know, I'm a basketballer, right? Yes, Tristan, where's this going? I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. so let me show you my Instagram. I open it, boom. It's all gonna be a bunch of like, uh, a bunch of things I'm not, right? Like I'm a mm-hmm. 6'3", mixed race shooter. So all it's gonna show me is like guys who are shorter than me, who are built like track and field athletes that can jump as high as I never will be able to physiologically. And then it'll mm-hmm. show me a bunch of guys who are six eight plus, who are playing you know post moves and such that I'll never get to use in a high level game. And I'm like, so looking at this, you'd probably assume that there's not that many interesting six foot three green eyed half cast shooters out there, is there? And they're like, yeah, that's what you'd think. I'd be like, okay, well there's this guy called Steph Curry, 
who might be, you know, somewhat of a deal in the NBA. Like the, you know, probably just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the, the biggest champion of the past decade literally fits my description and you'll never see him on my newsfeed because it would feed me the idea that I'm enough. Whereas if it feeds me all the things I can never be, then as soon as you call me, oh, you're a white combo guard, I feel limited. I get upset. And then what are you going to see on my feed? Advertisements for supplements, mass gainer. I'm like, ah, this algorithm still doesn't understand what the equilibrium is of an athlete at each ideal BMI. It's good to know I'm still ahead of these types of things in some places. But like, it's not just the fact that like the kids are getting hostile with one another. It's that the Mm. leverage of hostility is getting multiplied by how many billion data transactions each half hour? Like, well, you you think about this and you want to put it in a a historical context. I just want to throw this in um, and I'll I'll, I'll defer to you. But we basically have taken the intellectual equivalent of cosmopolitan magazine quizzes. And we've limited the exposure that people have in terms of their feeds to that type of content. And then if you look at what's been going on in Twitter for, what, the past, like, couple of months, we're now finding out that there's been algorithmic manipulation. There's manipulation based upon how they have you identified politically. There's manipulation um, in Facebook. There's manipulation in Instagram. So... You are, instead of you actually having the ability to digest a broader base of content organically, the only organic option that you have through most of the content consumption channels that are available to you, you know, the the socials, YouTube, other video platforms, really kind of becomes kind of narrowed. And I I think that echoes your point, right? Mm. Is that it's only giving you like this much when that much is available. And... Mm you know that that starts that starts to change people's opinions that starts to limit people's perspectives and and when it becomes repetitious specifically when it's to race or gender or identity or really origin for folks like us um it just kind of doubles down on stereotypes that already exist and it doesn't really help society and it doesn't grow anyone and it it makes us less than what we should be yeah, yeah. and the the thing what i was going to say and i think it ties into that too is that aside from the the hostility um associated with uh with what you were talking about tristan is the uh, level of influence that that these uh tech companies and um the 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 things that kids are being exposed to uh, on social media generally like you mentioned between the ages of three and eight that that children discover mm-hmm. their their identity and and who they no who no they no are. no no that's how, that's how the that's how, that's when the human brain is trying to understand how identity functions right in your right. side right so, like so, historically there's been different different cultures where you know when the medicine man puts on the mask he's got a different name he's got different rules he's going to treat you differently like okay we're trying to we're, we're at that stage of figuring things out between three to eight so those mm-hmm. those machines are capable of more or less programming your idea of how real you have to be well and he, he, that's I mean. that's so they get they get to push that level of consumerist framing on how a human should live their life in an extra level of insidiousness well here's an example of the influence that that has on behavior there was a kid who uh got in trouble did 
um, fucked up in some way uh, and was in trouble with his with his parents. And his parents, uh, I think it was his dad, went onto his phone and found a video that the four-year-old had recorded uh, on on the dad's phone. I hadn't uploaded it or anything like that, but it was an, apo- an apology video that uh, that he'd filmed uh, of, of himself in the same way that... Because he'd obviously seen people who mm-hmm. fucked up and posted apology videos online. And so he's like emulated that because he felt guilty. And that's it's influenced his behavior to such a degree that that was his about, approach. About what? Did he, make, did he make an apology video announcement for drawing dicks on the wall in crayon? Yeah, something like that. It, it had to have been or, drawing or, or dicks on the wall. Or it's this performative stuff. It, 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 no, think about this. This performative stuff, right? Where, you know, we, we understand that racism is a problem. And it's a much broader problem than just a black-white problem. But all of a sudden, you had a bunch of people doing performative apologies to black people in different communities. And I'm like, okay, did did, did you solve the issue of the digital divide? Did you solve the issue of how, you know, people want to be treated with dignity? Did you solve the issue of race relations? Did you solve anything? No, you did something performative. You got a bunch of likes. You're starting to tell people that, like, I'm a good person for this and that. But what's the difference in between that and, like, the person that comes into my community in Harlem, you know, to volunteer at a food shelter once a year for one day and and say that they've contributed as much as, you know, possible and, and gloat in it versus, you know, folks like us that are, are working on an ongoing basis to try and figure out, like, can we get more food to, you know, um, to, to food distribution centers? Can we do more? in terms of streamlining the process by which people have to go and get like aid and, and subsidies if they need it. Um, and then, yep. you know, more of like, just consider what you and I have had to go through in the past couple of years. I mean, we both had chronic health issues. Um, I'm about 94% getting through cancer and, you know, I'm still dealing with stupid questions like, well, when's your cancer going to be done? And I'm like, it's not like cooking an egg, you know, it, it, it's, it's like, I can't just how many gigs per second. How, yeah. <laughs> it's not like transferring a movie online, um, you know, and, and it, 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 it practically bankrupted me. And, you know, it, it's by the grace of God, I've had the ability to consult while I was lying in bed and I, I still have good days and bad days. Um, but, you know, a lot of other people that are in the same situation have to have some sort of a safety net. And there, there has to be a balance in between uh, a perspective of very small government, um, a social safety net, and, you know, the opposite, which is very large government. But there, there doesn't seem to be a want for any kind of a, a discussion on that. And one of the things I'm going to point this out, and, and I'll, I'll get a lot of crap for this, but as... As a Republican district leader in Harlem and as an American Muslim and as a minority living in this community, um, looking at other states where fellow conservatives don't understand the need for food subsidies for children, but they themselves get subsidized with free dinner inside of their legislatures like practically every other night, right? And free meals and free this and free that. It just shows that there's this huge disconnect in between the haves and the have-nots. And there's a lack of understanding of constituents, and that needs to be fixed. 
and, but it, it's not just a conservative problem. It's, it's a problem in, in democratic s cities as well, because in, in many cases, funding will be cut, funding will be reallocated, or, or funding will be mismanaged. And, you know, that's where technologically we've talked about blockchain solutions and a variety of other things that could be brought to bear that could, could kind of clean this stuff up. But you're dealing with bad policy, a lack of understanding of a lot of our legislators, um, an age gap, right? Like in, in our Congress, I don't know how it is in your parliament, but in Congress, there are more members of the great war generation, not boomers, great war preceding the boomer generation then there are millennials gen z and gen x combined and, yeah, well. and that kind of tells you something you know and i assume it to be kind of the same thing in australia and many of the other commonwealth countries and those are all the countries that you know are inside of this large trade pack with britain and we'll leave it at that as opposed to explaining what that is because that could take half an hour um <laughs> And and it also seems to be the, the same the same way in some European countries, uh, some of the Nordic countries. It seems to be changing, um, you know. But there there just seems to be a lack of understanding of like what is required to stimulate local economies when you've had a massive technological shift, when you've had a split from you know the military industrial complex and the civilian industrial complex, when you've had a secondary shift in terms of technology splitting in multiple veins that like it's not all coupled together the way it was 20 years ago and and the fact that that simple macroeconomics and, and microeconomics don't seem to be things that any of these folks are really interested in and, and that's across the aisle hmm. yeah definitely um i want to talk about um something that tristan mentioned a little bit earlier uh, in low oxygen reactors, because I know that uh, obviously between the two of you, you've got a shared interest in uh, clean energy and clean tech. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, obviously there was that brief explanation as to um, as to what they are. So, uh, what what is the work that you that you're doing in that in that space? What are you what are you looking at, at looking at at the moment? Trying to raise. Uh roughly 300 million dollars to get behind a couple of uh approved locations for for running one of those and looking at how how th that that space between trash and energy is really where like when you hear about the concept of circular economics that's the it's very look it's a really difficult thing to do it, when you're looking at that as its own mammoth to slay but this is also the spear you need to slay the mammoth known as a circular economy so it's uh it's a worthy herculean task even though it's a pain in the ass because uh getting a hold of that trash and being able to produce energy out of it also allows a lot of other things like uh creating construction materials and um, raw materials for furniture or consumer goods um, to be made uh, in a make-to-order kind of model uh, off the back of it because we know that it's going to have value in energy people are going to need energy but if you've got a hold of all of this this equipment and it's and it's making turnover and you're you're getting cash flow both on the 
side of dealing with the trash and then also on the side of whatever you're making out of it then you can mm -hmm. instantly offer people the ability to create orders so i'm working with builder brokers who are you know large-scale seo lock-off experts who i can see being useful city by city in delivering these um these materials and getting them into markets but uh the the whole thing really comes down to um like uh to me right i'm not i i'm, I'm not going to give you a normal answer an investor would right uh, an investor is going to be interested more case by case than i am in understanding how to scale this all the way to the end which is really my role in terms of being useful to other people on the investment side of the fence and making sure that I maximize their opportunity. And the, the, the biggest struggle is like Oz said, you kind of mm -hmm. have to go somewhere that accepts more primordial or chaotic technological examples uh, so that you can give more empirical proof of how they work in practice um, to people who honestly are, are generally quite apathetic. Like it's, it's like part of the difficulty is, uh, is finding people that will really click with the idea of pushing these envelopes, right? Because, mm -hmm. uh, finding someone who's willing to take a massive risk on say, finding the R factor of a construction material where they're finding out whether or not this material can even hold heat acceptably. Like it's, there's not that many people that are excited technologists who right. also want to throw that money at something that like like that's a boring ass thing that's really boring when you isolate <laughs> it as the the insulation level of this particular polymer that uses uh right. pyrolyzed trash like people are asleep by the time you've gotten halfway through that and so it's but, but the, then there's 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 the other side of it right so the the other side of it is is that we deal with these idiotic bureaucracies that that really prevent us from from moving this forward and in new yeah. york you know it's a democratic establishment that doesn't want to change and, and they don't understand like the the intrinsic overall value of this if you set up <laughs> kind of a kind of a hub okay that's a waste to energy hub you are immediately impacting all of this garbage that's created on a daily basis. You could be impacting the solids that are taken out of wastewater treatment, right? Which is, in essence, that that has to be either turned into um, some sort of landfill or compostable material, and it has to be cleaned up before you do something with it because it's human waste. But in this case, it could be burned in a low oxygen environment, turned into briquettes, turned into fuel. But the beauty of this system of it starting in the center, and the reason why I keep putting my hands up like this, is that you could build kind of extensions off of this, right? And if you add uh, a couple of chemical compounding systems, you can immediately create ammonia. And people go, well, why do you need ammonia? Well, all of your fertilizer is ammonia. And then oh, sorry, sorry, the ammonia... Sorry. Sorry, one fact people should know. The human population was 1 billion before the Haber-Bosch ammonia process. So like five out of six or seven people you know only exist because of ammonia. People don't realize that this is like that level of building block to what we currently call life. Uh, right. I, I wanted, and then, and then if you add, an, uh, you add another chemical process, you can now create urea. And that's used in everything from 
practically every every product that you have in your bathroom that's made by Unilever or one of these large companies, it's used in in preservatives and foodstuffs, but it's also used in things like making diesel fuel. It has it has hundreds of thousands of applications that are absolutely necessary for industry and for business. And you know, with the war in Ukraine, we've seen huge like decimation of the the ammonia generation and the urea generation capacities of uh of ukraine but then also the ability for like most of the world to buy it from them and if you you think about where we need to be on a country by country basis we need to have energy sustainability and and uh, supportability but we also need to not be affected by you know wars in other countries really kind of running ramshackle on our supply chains. And, and that's what's happened in, in pretty yeah. much every westernized country through COVID and through the Ukraine war. And it, it's something weirdly simple, oddly complex, waste focused, but it could literally revolutionize how energy companies operate. And then if you start taking from tech transfer offices and university systems, and then, and then also the stuff that's coming from like government grants and start commercializing things in an effective manner, but really opening the doors to bring technology companies that are building this stuff. Like there's a ton of stuff coming out of Carnegie Mellon and MIT, right? But getting the funding into that, which is what Tristan is, is working through now and that I've been involved in for over a decade, it's complicated. And then yeah. once oh. you've proven it out, you, you then have to, you really have to get people to buy into that idea. It, it's like having a hundred or Andrew Carnegie's trying to get started but people don't understand steel yeah oh it, that's a very good way of putting it and it also like it just sets off a lot of hilarious like uh psychological and ego traps when you're, you're tapping a guy on the shoulder who's you know mentally in the yacht club 23 hours a day and you're like hey i got this mad way to make you money and he's like yeah this is great and then at some point he's like hey this fixes the environment. Are you drinking Kool-Aid? And they're like, it's hilarious how like, I'm like, look, man, I know that the world runs on money. I give a fuck about the environment. I'm doing everything I can to take something that's interesting to like manic entrepreneurs and like Asperger's level scientists. And then I'm trying yep. to tap a dude on the shoulder who's really, really interested in what complaint he can make about his awesome steak today. And... Mm -hmm. He realizes halfway through, I'm asking him to save a continent. And he's just like, are you a hippie? Are you a spook? What the fuck is going on here? Like, I've had guys lose their minds just from being like, hang on, what's going on here? And also, how do you know this under 30? I'm freaked out. And I'm like, well, I've, you backed me in a corner. The only thing I can tell you is I've got access to the same Google as you and you're a fucking idiot. Sorry. <laughs> like... But but you know you know where that stems from. That that stems from the fact that if you there there's and I, I've seen this in the music industry when I was there. I've seen this in finance. I've seen this in technology. If there's not a reason for them to change, they're not going to, because change costs money. Change impacts what they're going to be able to return in 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 terms of their quarterly earnings to their shareholders. And it longer term impacts the, the time frame they're going to have to recoup those those investments and, and really show yield again. And because we haven't changed 
the macroeconomic constraints inside of any of our, our industries and in not even in any of our traditional exchanges, right? Um, you know, from New York to, uh, you know, to London to, to Germany to, we'll just keep going around the world. But the, the thing that needs to happen to really fix this is if there is a government package that is a mixture of grants, tax incentives, um, location incentives, and uh, that has to be coupled with policy that makes sure that it's going to last more than one presidential term. Because that's the other thing they're terrified about is that like, what if I put a couple hundred million into this and then that guy gets out of office and this guy gets into office and they're like, no. And, you know, with the HBCUs that, that Trump funded, we saw one problem with Biden cutting the funding. But then the other problem that we had was like border security contracts and a lot of these other things like stuff that was ramped up, got ramped down. And with the Green New Deal, it scares the living piss out of people because one, it doesn't have effective bipartisan support. And two, at the base level of it, you could, you know, scream like Greta Thunberg all you want all day long. But if you're not bringing something to the table that is going to help all of these traditional energy companies transform themselves internally to the new technology over a course of whatever that is, 5, 10, 15 years, and show them that there's a methodology by which they will be returning revenues and dividends within call it like three to four quarters, all of those CEOs are going to be out of their jobs. Most of the leadership is going to be out of their jobs. And, and, and that's, that's the unfortunate nature of the beast. And because we don't have people thinking in the, in the context of, well, if we were to fix the macroeconomics of this, plus all of those government policy pieces, and make sure that it's got some extensibility to it, people would buy into it. But other, but if if none of that's there, there's no reason for these companies, unfortunately, to change from burning coal to even think about gasification, which is much cleaner, um, and to you know do anything more than flare the gas. I mean, natural gas was being burned off of wellheads. Um, but there's five thousand wellheads in Texas alone that were doing it, and the only thing that made people cap it and start utilizing it is the fact that they could liquefy it and sell it to Europe now at a really, really high rate. Because before, it was too expensive just to get the infrastructure out there to sell it because you couldn't sell it at a fair price. And, mm -hmm. and these are the things that, that no one discusses. It, it doesn't come up on CNN. It doesn't come up on Fox. They give you both extremes because they're more interested in the sound bites and they're not interested in the solutions. Oh yeah, and the 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 game theory economically is completely completely on drugs as well. Like mm -hmm. the um like th like unironic statement I heard when I started pitching large scale full blown solutions. Like I'm talking solving a country's carbon issues x two at a time and shifting their whole chessboard around in a very awesome mm -hmm. way for some people. And when I spoke to people in like the, in particular, like a, a few like angel investment communities, like they didn't mm -hmm. mean it with malice to me. They were just like, like, like the ones I speak to, I mean, obviously by now they've, they've like my loud mouth has helped me find out which ones are worth talking to or not. But right. even they're, they're like, Hey, Tristan, like you need to go find a bespoke solution at the corporate level because these people who should be interested in disrupting this 
are heavily invested in carbon portfolios and they're scared about what would happen if you introduce this many credits to the market or rendered the market a solved problem. And so then all the way up into a lot of people playing the theory on the legislative end, they're like, well, we'd rather see you wait until we accept that we need to have proper accountability for inputs and outputs of gases in a country. We don't want to see the problem solved until after that, because then we're losing our um, you know, seat at this poker table. And I'm just like, yo, this poker there's, table There's an is easy answer world. for that. There, there's an easy answer for that, and I, I think they overlook it because, again, it's tied into the banking system, it's tied into lines of credit, it's tied into the fact that many of these companies are overextended in many ways. Um, you know, it, it, it just baffles. I'll just give you a statistic, okay? When I was consulting with General Electric, and this was decades ago, um, and I was doing Six Sigma stuff, uh, I just remember one of the VPs told me that they operated at 31% efficiency. Okay, so if you consider it's an eight-hour day, what's 31% of that? That's you come in, you take, you answer some emails, you take a couple of meetings, but by lunch, you've basically fucked off, which basically means that you only have like two and a half hours of productivity a day, and they're making billions of dollars in two and a half hours of productivity effectively a day. And they were saying that if they could raise the productivity just 1%, that, that equated to somewhere between 10 million to 100 million per division, okay? And so if you think about the fact that most of these large co corporations operate with a significant degree of entropy, and they're considering this only from the perspective of carbon credits, and they like utilization of carbon credits because what it does is it gives them agreed aspect to this you could actually change the paradigm by packaging the credits with a credit to tax transfer initiative meaning that now the credits could be utilized in a manner and fashion with government to abate taxes and this is a bigger thing in australia than it is here because your tax system is completely different than ours and, and a lot more onerous but that type of methodology could easily be extruded to parts of Europe, the rest of the world, and emerging economies. Right. And things like yeah. that are, are, are really, those could be the drivers to say, hey, listen, we'll give you this, but what you have to do is you have to sign up to do these types of technology pilots. Yes. And we'll, yeah. we'll do a public-private partnership with you to build it. And what we'd like you to do is to become an industry segment leader in this as yeah. we'd like to transition out of this full carbon economy into this new economy. And I'll tell you, we've done this in our lifetime. And everyone forgets about this. From 1981 to about 1999, America had this huge problem with acid rain. Okay? And acid rain was solved by a mixture of technology, working with companies, a bit of university, government support, and policy and so if we could do it to the point and degree that acid rain isn't even an issue or a consideration anymore and it's not called acid rain anymore it's called uh something like sulfur or sulfated rain um and it's like an so4 you know um uh, chemical formula inside of like what I the mean, rain it feels is more distant and sciencey than telling people it's raining acid yeah you know, because they just keep changing the terms on this stuff. But if you were to, to think about 
how we did that. And you were to say, all right, well, you want to go green. Well, we could go that way because uh, even when I was at The Economist, right, we worked with Chevron. We built this game called Energy Bills, a video game. And it was built on Economist data and it talked about, well, what will it take to transition fully to green? And there wasn't a scenario and you could play with all the different types of energy to power a city. And that city had a consumption of like a gigawatt. And then it would incrementally grow the city over years. But what you found out was you had to have some mixture of fossil fuels and some mixture of green, and you could eventually transition to green. Okay. And, and this is outside of the whole EV issue because there's slave labor issues with that. And there's mining issues with that. And there's, there's runoff issues. There's a whole a ton of other issues. So let's Why take that and like push that over here. Yeah. 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 Right. It's a, it's a work, work um, <laughs> but if we're just talking about energy, and we're talking about upgrading the grid, and we're talking about transitioning these companies. We did it for acid rain. We had the metal to do it, and we did it through, in America, we did it through both Democratic and Republican administrations, in many cases, predominantly Republican administrations, right? It can be done here. It can be done in Australia. It can be done everywhere. And your biggest issue is all of the coal mining that they want to do on that reef, right? On the Great Barrier Reef, in addition to all of the coal mining that because because here's the thing it's 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 just cheap and they have the methodology to do it and realistically they just have to throw machinery and labor at it you don't have to yeah. really think about it there's no big technology expense to this i've seen i've mm, seen right? some pretty i've seen some pretty solid reports like let, let's imagine you know i magically snapped my fingers and there was like a nuclear power plant somewhere close to sydney it's still mm -hmm. just based on australia's abundance of coal it would still be six times cheaper per megawatt hour to just run on coal. And so in, in Australia, um, like, I think like what you're talking about in terms of like, look, if you, if you want a tax dodge portfolio option, here are some fucking good ones that solve the problem. Like that, mm -hmm. that is like, like Australia is a perfect country for that kind of thing because like so much of our land has the potential to be restored. And like stuff right. like the briquetting facility you're talking about, you put the carbon into the ground, you're literally going to be able to create like a positive spiral of regenerating the land and then sequestering more carbon, especially if you're doing something like hemp or you're using a regenerative style of beef farming that doesn't use, uh, you know, fodder that puts out methane. All these things are possible. And like, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's incredible how many people on the left want to pat themselves on the back for supposedly caring about the environment when they haven't but done. But it's nothing more than greenwashing. I mean, it is. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. It it, it, it like, and and it's like, it's just I like, I gotta be real. It's just it's it is straight up narcissistic as fuck. Like if you if you don't have the time to read about the boringness of the solutions but you do have the time to hold someone up in traffic about how you're worried about the problem i don't think you give mm -hmm. a fuck about the problem i don't think you give a flying fuck about it and it's pretty amazing because most of those people they meet me and they're like oh this guy used the word money he must not care about the environment and I'm just like, yeah, mm -hmm. cool. Like, yeah, go screech in traffic about it. Yeah. Excellent. Um, speaking of money. No, I think, I, I think, so I just said that I want to end cap that. It's, I think our focus here is that if we were to use the strategies of the past that have worked and we were to bring those to the solutioning that's needed now, mm -hmm. really all it takes is more sensibility, more focus, 
less yeah. politics, but also understanding that you got to help the companies change because there's really no economic incentive for them to do it. And when for each one of these industries, if you're talking about like, okay, well, what's the coal industry in, in Australia, right? It's probably several hundred billion dollars. So if you've got a mountain that's several hundred billion dollars and you say, okay, well, I want you to convert to green. And I go, yeah, but the, the mountain for green is we're only going to make, you know, uh, a tenth of that. And we're going to have to expend three times that in terms of R&D and transformation of business and transformation of hiring to get there. And it's going to take us an extended period of time. The answer is what we articulated, which is policy, government involvement, macro and economic changes, technology transfer through public-private partnerships, and then really working with companies to figure out exemplar companies that can lead in the space. And at the same time, empowering startups to yes. create more jobs and to to bring that that to fruition because they're the only ones who are crazy enough that are going to raise money to you know turn on giant solar ovens or to turn on solar concentrators or to build you know dramatically new power systems that are far more efficient than the existing power systems that are out there. But you, there there seems to be a big disconnect between the left. And corporate America, and I would say corporate anywhere in the world, corporate Australia. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be a lack of conversation in between the right and technologists to say, hey, you know, we had an industrial revolution once before. We could have a green revolution that would be equally as powerful in terms of transforming people's lives and raising the standard of living and doing all these other things. Mm -hmm. But it's going to require the metal of, of working together. Yeah, power sovereignty and food sovereignty are two of the biggest things uh, classically conservative-minded people should be worried about. And mm. so they've got to stop feeling like, oh, this smells like environmentalism, get me out of here, you know? And uh, just accepting, like, uh, the raw matters of strategy um, mm -hmm. that do happen to be good for everyone as not necessarily being bad for the self. Like there's a sort of framing of economics as a negative sum competition in, in, in a lot of uh, like conservative media, which is just not the right way to be approaching economics, even if it might be more wise in other areas. And on the left, there needs to be more of a recognition of like, uh, what's even a sane pace and style of disruption to ask for mm -hmm. like because your job in this whole thing is apparently to care about the people so probably don't you know uh shrink the middle class in your process of trying to slay the energy dragon spend more time being progressive progress the agriculture industry if you care about the workers think about the farmers a little bit more like there's there's but not you just think about the farmers to, you don't have to knock down an oil rig if you plant a few thousand hectares of hemp we we, we can all have our own little that, that has I, I completely agree with you and, and that has its its legal challenges to it in in both australia and america and in a variety of other countries but i would say that that the 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 crux of this change needs to be a, a philosophical understanding that every single time america has changed every single time australia has changed right from 
you know, a maritime economy to an industrial economy to now a technology economy, you can't depend on things like Silicon Valley to drive everything because they become as nefarious as the, the CEO who's beholden to his quarterly earnings because now it's an, an even more dangerous evil. It's the venture capitalist who wants their yield back, who wants their return on their investment, and they want it now faster and in different ways, and they're more willing to sell your technology and bastardize what you've created. You know, Google started out saying do no evil, and now they've got an AI product that's stealing information from chat GPT, right? That doesn't work. I mean, I mean, like, what's, you know, what's your definition of evil here? Because that, that sounds a little evil to me. Um, but at the same point in time, you know, they're, they're not innovating in a way that's really affecting uh, anything outside of their corporate purview. You know, oh, they, they have greener data centers. They have a lot of this stuff. But guess who, the only people that it impacts is Google. So what? Yeah, well, but, but, a lot of a lot of those fund managers, they're they're just happy to be there, and they're they're just like, well, I should fail with what whoever above me is drinking in terms of Kool Aid, so that I hide behind their cognitive dissonance instead of getting fired for lacking initiative. Like mm -hmm. it's like a lot of that stuff I look at and I look at like what I've had access to, which I guess is like quite privileged because Australia is underfunded. So mm -hmm. if you've got a good enough scientific vocabulary, like I've gotten access to stupidly great amounts of information just because of how easy it is to get your foot in the door here compared to what it is with, you know, a renowned innovator over there. But mm -hmm. I just look at that shit and I'm just like, this sounds like a skill issue, guys. Like you guys <laughs> suck. <laughs> So what is well, it? Well, then, then that goes. To the... Sorry, lucky as you were. Oh, I was. I was going to ask what. What is it at the moment um, that each of you are um, most excited about in 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 either uh, technologically or politically uh, in terms of advancement? What what is what is something that gets you really excited in in that space? You go. Um. In Rhode Island, because we've, we've tried working in New York for years, and I mean, I'm, I'm the head of the, the New York Blockchain Association, uh, which is a, a legislatively lobbying body. You know, we're, we're less like the, the meetups and that kind of stuff. That's the Blockchain Center and a few other organizations. Um, but I've been working with Rhode Island since 2018, and we're currently working with their legislature. And, um, uh, we, you know, we previously worked with Jessica De La Cruz and David Place, so bipartisan support. Uh, but we're primarily working with David Place. Um, and it's, again, bipartisan support by talking to their speaker the other day, where we want to bring policy into place that can help with crowdfunding under the JOBS Act of 2012 that Obama created, by which you could use non-accredited investors to raise you know, a couple hundred thousand to a couple million for an initiative. But guess what that does? That creates businesses, that creates jobs. And that doesn't necessarily have to be something technological. That could be funding, you know, like a a, uh, a restaurant that has a really good business thesis in an area that's underserved. That could be uh, it, putting in some sort of, uh, you know, a food uh, distribution center or a, a supermarket in an area that there's a food desert that could be a variety of things right but we're we're advancing blockchain policy and we're advancing 
legislative efforts to try and make Rhode Island kind of like a better version of Wyoming, more crypto friendly, more blockchain friendly, uh, more open for banks to come in and start working on and kind of like sandboxes, so to speak. That that I'm really excited about. And I think that that's probably going to take a while for us to matriculate. But, you know, if we build that, then there's dozens of states behind them that would say, hey, if this is massive economic in, in, invective for you. And what I like about Rhode Island is it's got a lot of the same statistics as we do in, in uptown New York City. Like I have an effective unemployment rate of about 25 percent in Harlem. Um, the same effective unemployment rate is in Providence, Rhode Island. We've got the same digital divide where, you know, we've got a ton of universities around us, but we have a, a population that really doesn't have access to either the government partnerships or government training or even industry sponsored training, right, to get them into those tech jobs. And, and in most cases, we're talking about minorities, we're talking about black and brown people, right? And brown people look like me, brown people who are Latino, brown people who are Asian, brown people who are South Asian, you know, just, and, and brown people who are Latin American. Um, so a lot of people so those two um, see like the heavy urbanization of New York or understand it can't even begin to comprehend how serious it is to surround people with a concrete jungle where mm -hmm. um, construction requires a very different level and style of training and the manual labor is effectively closed off to people who are then not really even given the basic access to contribute mm -hmm. to the digital world like like you can get as you can get as uh you know uh 4chan dwelling ben shapiro fan as you'd like about crime statistics but like brother your choices there are starvation and crime like what are you uh, i mean like, and and with a lot of actually support these communities it's not with a lot of the democratic so. policies that that we have it's it's just led to decline i'm not shooting on the democrats i'm just saying that like look there's good policy and there's bad policy and with the leadership that we've had we've had a lot of bad policy in new york where we're looking at using Rhode Island as an exemplar is that in a bipartisan way with support of both Democrats and Republicans, maybe we can try something that's different and build something that's based upon what's worked in university, what's worked with university data studies on, on building these communities. And what we know from the Department of Labor, what I know from IQ4, which is you know an organization that seeks to take underprivileged folks and bring them into technology jobs, mm -hmm. mostly in cybersecurity, um, had to, to our sponsor. And, uh, you know, those, those things, those things need to, to change to, to really encompass a vision that I think allows for the American people to level themselves up. Mm -hmm. And part of this is potentially going to be gamifying it. And then that leads me to my, my other project which is Parallel Worlds. Um, and so we're working Sorry, before, uh, with a company. Before you leave that one, I've got a question. Would, like, mm -hmm. would you say that that type of um, community outreach and upskilling is where the future of vertical farming is really going to come from in your country? Um, it can. The problem with vertical farms is that our build cost 
in New York is $1,400 a square foot. Yeah. And vertical farms for them to exist in cityscapes across any part of the land really need to be in places that are in a lower cost environment. So I would say you could put the vertical farms like on the outskirts of Queens, maybe um, most likely outside of New York city, like anywhere that's reasonably upstate where your build costs drop from that to say like a couple hundred bucks a square foot. But then they just need to be uh, tied into the infrastructure that would feed into the transportation hub um, that's at the, the bottom of the Bronx uh, that feeds all five boroughs that, that serves the, as the distribution of food and, and really most resources to millions and millions of people, effectively about 17.1 million people in the metropolitan service area. Um, things like that would work. The, the challenge that you have with, with vertical farming really kind of stems into utilization of like, you know, what lights are you using? Are you using pink light or using a, a multi-spectrum light, that sort of a thing. Um, the cost per square foot of operation to, to actually raise whatever it is. And, and most of the vertical farms in New York City that do exist are doing things like microgreens and, um, you know, chef choice staples and things like that, that they can sell at a much higher price um, per mm -hmm. pound that are, are being used in, in restaurants, you know, so the, the, the food deserts, those types of things are still there. I think it could be a huge solution, but again, it's another industry that's going to need some sort of governmental public part, private partnership and some sort of subsidy to get these things moving. Yeah, Cause you some, could put some, a, some celebrity chef who's interested in doing something real different. Yeah, yeah exactly. That could be awesome. And it can't be Rachel Ray. It has to be someone much bigger. Um, <laughs> Uncle Roger, get Uncle Roger. In <laughs> Uncle Roger only has three million subscribers right now. I don't think it's enough. You know, you need someone bigger. Sure. I mean, if you brought like <laughs> Uncle Roger would be good for something like that. Um, but yeah, you know, that's 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 what I'm I'm jazzed about right now. And then Parallel Worlds, which we're kind of uh, trotting out at NFT NYC. We're going to be creating an, an actual digital twin environment of Manhattan. And we're going to start bringing that into a metaverse storyscape where people are effectively able to create three-dimensional content. Because the, the lamest thing right now about the metaverse is like, it's like, come here, buy our land. And it's like, after a couple of months, I'm like, well, what do I do with all this land? And they're like, they're like, the land's worth money. I'm like, no, it's virtual land in a virtual place that's only as valuable as what people's faith is in it, you know? And and we saw this with a, with a huge number of these companies that cratered and, you know, just like died out in the past couple of months. We saw this with like the land erosion that we had inside of the, the NFT and metaverse space. So, you know, trying to build something there technologically that makes a lot more sense um, that, you know, really takes us to what I call Web 2.5 which is we know all this web two stuff and the web three stuff is interesting, but if you want to get the average consumer there, it has to not violate Fuller's law, which is 80% old, 20% new. And the problem with most of web three is it's like the internet. It's a hundred percent new. So you only get, a, if you have a bell curve, you really only get that 13% of early adopters that yeah. jump into this kind of stuff. And everyone else stares at like, you know, did you bring a hyena to the party? Like, what the hell is that? Um, like, they're just confused. Mm, and nice. and so those are, those are the two things that I'm kind of like jazzed about. 
pretty involved in right now. Okay. Um, and then, you know, just local food policy, a couple other things. And then we've got an interfaith project in the works where I'm trying to just turn it into cross-faith because if we can get better understanding inside of uh, people of faith, you know, focused in kind of an understanding of community and family and these types of things and just the civic structures that really build successful and healthy communities, um, we can do better and we could do a lot better. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, we we are uh, way over time at this point, so um, I'm wondering. Yeah, well, if, I need uh, to talk about what excites me. Yeah, Parker. let's let's yeah yeah um, let's talk about what I, what excites Why don't you do Tristan. what excites you, and then you, you could you could trim me, you know? No, that's uh, it's okay. Um, yeah, I'd like to. What what if we run into what what no, excites fine. Tristan, and then and then wrap it up, call it call it there. Yeah, sounds good. Sorry. Um, so. I'm really, really, really fucking interested in that uh, that circular economics thing, right? Because, I mean, it, it should, like, survival shouldn't be, like, you know, crazy, <laughs> crazy high on the list in the consideration <laughs> of this kind of thing. But, like, I'm not, I'm not just, like, scared of the stick. Like, the carrot here is fucking massive, right? Like, uh getting getting together something that's got such a raw continuous intrinsic value that scales in like lockstep with the with the economy that it's installed within um that's also solving a problem um that scales Mm -hmm. with the size of the city that's in um that can then also create a plus sum situation where i'm also managing to add uh agriculture and waste to uh construction materials um you're starting to get like a a a serious like like the the thing oz is talking about you know where you're really looking at like a central like piece of of what a sane modern economy might look like i like straight up if anyone can find me something more similar to joseph's step pyramid in history like mm-hmm. i'll give you a foot rub like that like this this I'll is, this is a, <laughs> oh like no seriously like, good luck good fucking luck the 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 implications of how it could stabilize um you know our relationship with the planet in a way that doesn't hold us back where mm-hmm. you know the entire discussion around environmentalism usually feel it feels like a chore right like it feels really? like it, it straight up feels like someone's nagging you like mm. it's like there's you know someone's eq'd in five percent greta thunberg into every discussion everywhere um mm. about the thing and it's like nah this is no different to just like uh you know a creature managing to scale up and balance out it's like uh gases between oxygen and co2 like we're we're starting to understand uh you know what what's the lactic acid what's the atp of the inter you maybe want to boil that down for folks yeah because i don't know if everyone knows what adenosine triphosphate is yeah yeah yeah. no real normal stuff um but uh like what what i'm saying is like it's uh it's comparable to an evolution of a species that that sort of happens externally in humans in in the form of things like an industrial revolution right like 
whales, if you're measuring hardware to hardware, whales are smarter than us. They don't write books. They don't externalize their information and externalize their innovations like we do. And mm -hmm. uh, this, I think, is a huge deal where, uh, you know, the good news is like, if we don't get our shit together, we don't have to see it get much worse for much longer. And if we do get our shit together, it's, it's a really, really bright future. And mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm super excited to see, uh, you know, the effects of even if just a few places accept this, like it's going to be unbelievably awesome that I get to live out a good significant period of my life, hopefully watching a society actually grow. <laughs> like, the, the, right. we, we haven't seen it for a while and I don't know what it feels like. I know what it feels like standing in a field that's, you know, just lost a, lost a crop. And I know what it's like standing in one that's about to be harvested and it's about to be good times around. Like, And, you know, engage us online. Uh, we've got most of the socials uh, pretty much set up and we're going to be putting this out through a couple of channels. And, you know, we're also looking for thought leaders and tastemakers inside of these spaces to join us. So if you'd like to be on, definitely hit us up. Um, and, uh, you know, this will be this will be an interesting year. 